are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Sapphire Planet. Neil Alden Armstrong was an American NASA astronaut, test pilot, aerospace engineer, university professor, United States naval aviator, and the first person to set foot upon the moon. Before becoming an astronaut, Armstrong was the United States Navy and served in the Korean War. After the war, he served as the test pilot at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics High Speed Flight Station, now known as the Dryden Flight Research Center, where he flew over 900 flights in a variety of aircraft. As a research pilot, Armstrong served as project pilot on the F-100 Super Sabre, A and C variants, F-101 Voodoo, and the Lockheed F-104A Starfighter. He also flew on the Bell X-1B, the Bell X-5, North American X-15, the F-105 Thunder Chief, the F-106 Delta Dart, the B-47 Stratojet, the KC-135 Stratotanker, and was one of eight elite pilots involved in the paraglider research vehicle program. He graduated from Purdue University and the University of Southern California. A participant in the U.S. Air Force's Man in Space Soonest and X-20 Dinosaur Human Spaceflight programs, Armstrong joined the NASA Astronaut Corps in 1962. His first spaceflight was the NASA Gemini 8 mission 
1966, for which he was the command pilot, becoming one of the first U.S. civilians to fly in space. On this mission, he performed the first manned docking of two spacecraft with pilot David Scott. Armstrong's second and last space flight was as mission commander of the Apollo 11 moon landing mission on July 20th, 1969. On this mission, Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin descended to the lunar surface and spent two and a half hours exploring while Michael Collins remained in orbit in the command module. Armstrong was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Richard Nixon along with Collins and Aldrin, the Congressional Space Medal of Honor by President Jimmy Carter in 1978, and the Congressional Gold Medal in 2009. Neil Armstrong was born in Wapakoneta, Ohio, to Stephen Armstrong and Viola Engel. He was of Scott, Irish, and German descent and had two younger siblings, June and Dean. His father, Stephen Armstrong, worked as an auditor for the Ohio State Government and the family moved around the state repeatedly in the 15 years following Armstrong's birth, living in 20 different towns. His love for flying grew during this time. Having gotten off to an early start when his father took two-year-old Neil to the Cleveland Air Races. On July 20th, 1936, when Neil was six, he experienced his first airplane flight in Warren, Ohio, when he and his father took a ride in a Ford Trimotor, also known as a Tin Goose. His father's last forced move was to Wapakoneta in 1944, where Neil attended Bloom High School. Armstrong began taking flying lessons at the county airport and was just 15 when he earned his flight certificate. This was before he even had his driver's license. Armstrong was active in the Boy Scouts and eventually earned the rank of Eagle Scout. As an adult, he was recognized by the Boy Scouts of America with its Distinguished Eagle Scout Award and Silver Buffalo. On July 18, 1969, while flying towards the moon inside the Columbia, he greeted the scouts. I'd like to say hello to all my fellow scouts and scouters at Farragut State Park in Idaho, having a national jamboree there this week. And Apollo 11 would like to send them best wishes. In 1947, Armstrong began studying aerospace engineering at Purdue University, where he was a member of Phi Delta Theta and Kappa Kappa Psi. 
He was only the second person in his family to attend college and was also accepted to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But the only engineer he knew who had attended MIT dissuaded him from attending, telling Armstrong that it was not necessary to go all the way to Cambridge, Massachusetts for a good education. His college tuition was paid for under the Holloway Plan. Successful applicants committed to two years of study, followed by three years of service in the United States Navy, then completion of the final two years of their degree. At Purdue, he earned average marks in his subjects with a GPA that rose and fell during eight semesters. He was awarded a Bachelor's of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering from Purdue University in 1955 and from the University of Southern California in 1970, a Master's of Science degree in Aerospace Engineering. Armstrong holds honorary doctorates from a number of universities. Armstrong's call-up from the Navy arrived on January 26, 1949, requiring him to report to Naval Air Station Pensacola for flight training. This lasted almost 18 months, during which he qualified for carrier landing aboard the USS Cabot and USS Wright. On August 16, 1950, two weeks after his 20th birthday, Armstrong was informed by letter that he was fully qualified as a naval aviator. His first assignment was to Fleet Aircraft Service Squadron 7 at NAS San Diego. Two months later, he was assigned to Fighter Squadron 51, an all-jet squadron, and made his first flight in a jet, an F-9F 2B Panther, on January 5th, 1951. In June, he made his first jet carrier landing on the USS Essex and was promoted the same week from midshipman to ensign. By the end of the month, the Essex had set sail with the Fighter Squadron 51 aboard, bound for Korea, where they would act as ground attack aircraft. Armstrong first saw action in the Korean War on August 29, 1951, as an escort for a photo reconnaissance plane over Sojin. On September 3, 1951, Armstrong flew armed reconnaissance over the primary transportation and storage facilities south of the village of Majon-ni, west of Wosan while he was making a low bombing run at about 350 miles per hour, Armstrong's Panther was hit by anti-aircraft fire. While trying to regain control, Armstrong collided with a pole at a height of about 20 feet, which sliced off an estimated three feet of the Panther's right wing. Armstrong was able to fly the plane back to friendly territory, but due to the loss of the aerial on, 
ejection was his only safe option. He planned to eject over water and await rescue by Navy helicopters, and therefore flew to an airfield near Pohang. But his ejection sheet was blown back over land. A jeep, driven by a roommate from flight school, picked Armstrong up. It is unknown what happened to the wreckage of his Panther. Armstrong flew 78 missions over Korea for a total of 121 hours in the air, most of which were in January 1952. He received the Air Medal for 20 combat missions, a Gold Star for the next 20, and a Korean Service Medal and Engagement Star. Armstrong left the Navy at age 22 on August 23, 1952 and became a lieutenant junior grade in the United States Naval Reserve. He resigned his commission in the Naval Reserve on October 21, 1960. After his service with the Navy, Armstrong returned to Purdue where his best grades came in the four semesters following his return from Korea. His final GPA was 4.8 out of 6.0. He pledged the Phi Delta Theta fraternity after his return and wrote and co-directed its musical as part of the All-Student Review. He was also a member of Kappa Kappa Psi, National Honor Band fraternity, and baritone player in the Purdue All-American Marching Band. Armstrong graduated in 1955 with a bachelor's degree in aeronautical engineering. While at Purdue, he met Janeth Sheeran, who was majoring in home economics. According to the two, there was no real courtship, and neither can remember the exact circumstances of their engagement, except that it occurred while Armstrong was working at the NACA Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory. They were married on January 28, 1956 at the Congregational Church in Wilmette, Illinois. When he moved to Edwards Air Force Base, he lived in the bachelor's quarters on the base, while Janet lived in the Westwood District of Los Angeles. After one semester, they moved into a house in Antelope Valley. Janet never finished her degree, a fact she regretted later in life. The couple had three children together, Eric, Karen, and Mark. In June 1961, Karen was diagnosed with a malignant tumor of the middle part of her brainstem. X-ray treatment slowed its growth, but her health deteriorated to the point where she could no longer walk or talk. Karen died of pneumonia related to her weakened health on January 28, 1962. Armstrong later completed his Master's of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering at the University of Southern California. Following his graduation from Purdue, Armstrong decided to become an experimental research test pilot. 
He applied at the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics High Speed Flight Station at Edwards Air Force Base. Although they had no open positions, they did forward his application to the Lewis Flight Propulsion Laboratory in Cleveland, Ohio, where Lewis began, where Armstrong began working at Lewis Field in March 1955. Armstrong's stint at Cleveland lasted a couple of months and by July 1955, he had returned to Edwards Air Force Base for his new job. On his first day at Edwards, Armstrong was tasked with his first assignments, which were to pilot chase planes during the release of experimental aircraft from modified bombers. He also flew the modified bomber and on one of these missions had his first flight incident at Edwards. Armstrong was in the right-hand seat of a B-29 Super Fortress on March 22, 1956, which was to airdrop a Douglas Skyrocket D-5882. Armstrong sat in the right-hand seat pilot while the left-hand seat commander, Stan Buchart, flew the B-29. As they ascended to 30,000 feet, the number four engine stopped and the propeller began windmilling in the airstream. Hitting the switch that would stop the propeller spinning, Buchart found that propeller slowed, but then it started spinning again, this time even faster than the other engines. If it spun, spun too fast, it would break apart. The aircraft needed to hold an airspeed of 210 miles per hour to launch its skyrocket payload and the B-29 could not land with the skyrocket still attached to its belly. Armstrong and Bouchard brought the aircraft into a nose-down alignment to increase speed then launched the skyrocket. At the instant of launch the number four engine propeller disintegrated. Pieces of its damaged the number three engine and hit the number two engine. Bouchard and Armstrong were forced to shut down the number three engine due to the damage and the number one engine due to the torque it created. They made a slow circling descent from 30,000 feet using only the number two engine and landed safely. Armstrong's first flight in a rocket plane was on August 15, 1957, in the Bell X-1B to an altitude of 11.4 miles. The nose landing gear broke on landing, which had happened on about a dozen previous flights of the Bell X-1B due to the aircraft's design. He later flew the North American X-15. Armstrong would fly the aircraft seven times before September 1962 and during his ultimate X-15 flight, he reached an altitude of 207,500 feet. Armstrong was also involved in several incidents that went down at Edwards folklore and were chronicled in the memoirs of his colleagues. The first was an X-15 flight on April 20, 1962 when Armstrong tested a self-adjusting control system. 
He flew to a height of 200,000 feet. This was also the highest he flew before Gemini 8. But he held the aircraft nose up too long during descent and the X-15 bounced off the atmosphere back up to 140,000 feet. At that altitude, the atmosphere is so thin that the aerodynamic surfaces have almost no effect. He flew past the landing field at Mach 3, over 100,000 feet in altitude, and ended up 40 miles south of Edwards. Legend has it that he flew as far as to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. After sufficient descent, he turned back towards the landing area and barely managed to land without striking Joshua trees at the south end of the runway. It was the longest X-15 flight in both time and distance of ground track. Four days later, Armstrong was involved in a second incident when he flew for the only time with Chuck Yeager. Their job, flying a T-33 shooting star, was to evaluate Smith Ranch Dry Lake for use as an emergency landing site for the X-15. In his autobiography, Yeager wrote that he knew the lake bed was unsuitable for landing after recent rains, but Armstrong insisted on flying out anyway. As they attempted a touch-and-go, the wheels became stuck and they had to wait for rescue. Armstrong tells a different version of events, where Jaeger never tried to talk him out of it, and they made a first successful landing on the east side of the lake. Then Jaeger told him to try again, this time a bit slower. And on the second landing, they became stuck, and according to Armstrong, Jaeger was in fits of laughter. Many of the test pilots at Edwards praised Armstrong's engineering ability. Milt Thompson said he was the most technically capable of the early X-15 pilots. Bill Dana said Armstrong had a mind that absorbed things like a sponge. Those who flew for the Air Force tended to have a different opinion, especially people like Chuck Yeager and Pete Knight, who did not have engineering degrees. Knight said pilot engineers flew in a way that was more mechanical than it is flying, and gave this as the reason why some pilot engineers got into trouble. Their flying skills did not come naturally. On May 21st, 1962, Armstrong was involved in what Edwards folklore called the Nellis Affair. He was sent in an F-104 starfighter to inspect Del Mar Lake again for emergency landing. He misjudged his altitude and also did not realize that the landing gear had not fully extended. As he touched down, the landing gear began to retract. Armstrong applied full power to abort the landing, but the ventral fin and landing gear door stuck to the ground, damaging the radio and releasing hydro hydraulic fluid. Without radio communications, Armstrong flew to Nellis Air Force Base, 
past the control tower and waggled his wings. The signal for a non-radio approach. The loss of hydraulic fluid caused the tail hook to release and upon landing he caught the arresting wire attached to an anchor chain and dragged that chain along the runway. It took 30 minutes to clear the runway and rig an arresting cable. Armstrong telephoned Edwards and asked for someone to come pick him up. Milt Thompson was sent in an F-104B, the only two-seater available, but a plane Thompson had never flown. With great difficulty, Thompson made it to Nellis, but a strong crosswind caused a hard landing and left main tire suffered a blowout. The runway was again closed to clear it, and Bill Dana was sent to Nellis in a T-33 shooting star, but he almost landed long, and the Nellis Base Operations Office decided to avoid any further problems. It would be best to find the three NASA pilots ground transportation back to Edwards. Armstrong made seven flights in his X-15. He reached a top altitude of 207,500 feet in the X-15-3 and a top speed of Mach 5.74, which is 4,000 miles per hour. And in the X-15-1, he left the Rice Dryden Flight Research Center with a total of 2,400 flying hours. Over his career, he has flown more than 200 different models of aircraft. There was no defining moment in Armstrong's decision to become an astronaut. In 1958, he was selected for the U.S. Air Force Man in Space Soonest program. In November 1960, Armstrong was chosen as part of the pilot consultant group for the X-20 Dinosaur, a military space plane, and on March 15, 1962, he was named of one of the six pilot engineers who would fly the space plane when it got off the design board. In the months after the announcement that applications were being sought for the second group of NASA astronauts, Armstrong became more and more excited about the prospects, both of the Apollo program and of the investigating a new aeronautical environment. Armstrong's astronaut application had arrived about a week past the June 1st, 1962 deadline, but Dick Day, with whom Armstrong had worked closely with at Edwards, worked at the Manned Spacecraft Center, saw the late arrival of the application, and slipped it in the file before anyone noticed. At Brooks City Base, at the end of June, Armstrong underwent a medical exam that many of the applicants described as painful and at times seemingly pointless. Dick Slayton called Armstrong on September 13, 1962 and asked whether he would be interested in joining the NASA Astronaut Corps as part of what the press had described the New Nine. Without hesitation, Armstrong said yes. The selections were kept secret until three days later, 
although newspapers reports have been circulating since earlier that year that he would be selected as the first civilian astronaut. Armstrong was one of two civilian pilots selected for the second group, the other being Elliot C., who, like Armstrong, was a naval aviator. Armstrong did not become the first civilian to fly in space. The Russians had launched Vostok 6 in June 16, 1963, with Valentina Tereshukova, a textile worker and amateur parachutist, aboard. The crew assignments for Gemini 8 were announced on September 20, 1965, with Armstrong as command pilot and David Scott as pilot. Scott was the first member of the third group of astronauts to receive a prime crew assignment. The mission launched on March 16, 1966. It was to be the most complex yet, with a rendezvous and docking with the unmanned Agena target vehicle. The second American extravehicle activity by Scott. In total, the mission was planned to last 75 hours and 55 orbits. After the Agena lifted off at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, the Titan II carrying Armstrong and Scott ignited at 11.41 Eastern Standard Time, putting them in an orbit for where they would chase the Agena. The rendezvous and first ever docking between two spacecrafts was successfully completed after 6.5 hours in orbit. Contact with the crew was intermittent due to the lack of tracking stations covering their entire orbit. Out of contact with the ground, the dock spacecraft began to roll, and Armstrong attempted to correct this with the orbital attitude and maneuvering system of the Gemini spacecraft. Following the earlier advice of mission control, they undocked but found that the roll increased dramatically to the point where they were turning about once per second, which meant that the problem was in the Gemini attitude control. Armstrong decided the only course of action was to engage the re-entry control system and turn off the orbital attitude and maneuvering system. Mission rules dictated that once the system was turned on, the spacecraft would have to re-enter at the next possible opportunity. It was later thought that damaged wiring made one of the thr thrusters become stuck in the on position. Throughout the astronaut office, there were a few people, most notably Walter Cunningham, who publicly stated that Armstrong and Scott had ignored the malfunction procedures for such an incident, and then Armstrong could have salvaged the mission if he turned on only one of the two RCS rings, saving the other for mission objectives. These criticisms were unfounded. No malfunction procedures were written, and it was possible to turn on only both RCS rings, not just one or the other. Gene Krantz wrote, the crew reacted as they were trained, and they reacted wrong because we trained them wrong. The mission planners and controllers had failed to realize 
that when two spacecrafts are docked together, they must be considered one spacecraft. Armstrong himself was depressed that the mission had been cut short, which canceled most mission objectives and robbed Scott of his EVA. The last crew assignment for Armstrong during the Gemini program was as backup commander pilot for Gemini 11, announced two days after the landing of Gemini 8. Having already trained for two flights, Armstrong was quite knowledgeable about the systems and was more in a teaching role for rookie backup pilot William Anders. The launch was on September 12, 1966, with Pete Conrad and Dick Gordon on board, who successfully completed the mission objectives while Armstrong served as Capcom. Following the flight, President Lyndon B. Johnson asked Armstrong and his wife to take part in a 24-day goodwill tour of South America. Also on the tour, which took in 11 countries and 14 major cities, were Dick Gordon, George Lowe, their wives, and other government officials. In Paraguay, Armstrong impressed dignitaries by greeting them in their local language, Gararuni. In Brazil, he talked about the exploits of Brazilian-born Alberto Santos Dumont, who was regarded as having beaten the Wright brothers to the first flying machine with his 14 bis. On January 27, 1967, the date of the Apollo 1 fire, Armstrong was in Washington, D.C. with Gordon Cooper and Dick Gordon, Jim Lovell, and Scott Carpenter for the signing of the United Nations Outer Space Treaty. The astronauts chatted with the assembled dignitaries until 6.45 p.m. when Carpenter went to the airport and the others returned to the Georgetown Inn where they each found messages to phone the Manned Space Center. During the telephone calls, they learned of the deaths of Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Armstrong and the group spent the rest of the night drinking scotch and discussing what had happened. On April 5, 1967, the same day the Apollo 1 investigation released its report on the fire, Armstrong assembled with 17 other astronauts for a meeting with Dick Slayton. The first thing Slayton said was, the guys who are in going to fly to the first lunar missions are the guys in this room. According to Eugene Cernan, Armstrong showed no reaction to the statement. To Armstrong, it came as no surprise. The room was full of veterans of Project Gemini, the only people who could fly the lunar missions. Slayton talked about the planned missions and named Armstrong to the backup crew for Apollo 9, which at that stage was planned to be a medium Earth orbit test of the lunar module command service module combination. After design and manufacturing delays in the lunar module, Apollo 9 and Apollo 8 swapped crews. Based on normal crew rotation scheme, Armstrong would command Apollo 11.
to attempt to give the astronauts experience on how to fly the limb. NASA commissioned Bell Aircraft to build two lunar, lunar landing research vehicles, later augmented with three lunar landing training vehicles, nicknamed the Flying Bedsteads. They simulated the moon's one-sixth of Earth's gravity by using a turbofan engine to support the remaining five-sixths of the crate's craft's weight. On May 6, 1968, at about 100 feet above the ground, Armstrong's controls started to degrade and the LLTV began banking. He ejected safely. Later analysis suggested that he ejected half a second later, his parachute would not have opened in time. His only injury was from biting his tongue. Even though he was nearly killed, Armstrong maintains that with the, R the LLRV, the lunar landings would not have been successful, as they gave commanders valuable experience in the behaviors of lunar landing craft. After Armstrong served as backup commander for Apollo 8, Deke Slayton offered him the post of commander of Apollo 11 on December 23, 1968, as Apollo 8 orbited the moon. In a meeting that was not made public until the publications of Armstrong's biography in 2005, Slayton told him that although the planned crew was Armstrong as commander, lunar module pilot Buzz Aldrin and command module pilot Michael Collins, he was offered the chance to replace Aldrin with Jim Lovell. After thinking it over for a day, Armstrong told Slate that he would stick with Aldrin as he had no difficulty working with him and thought Lovell deserved his own command. Replacing Aldrin with Lovell would have made Lovell the lunar module pilot, unofficially the lowest ranked member and Armstrong could not justify placing Lovell the commander of Gemini 12 in the number three position of the crew. On March 1969, meeting between Slayton, George Lowe, Bob Gilruth, and Chris Kraft determined that Armstrong would be the first person on the moon, in some part because of NASA management saw Armstrong as the person who did not have a large ego. A press conference held on April 14th 1969, gave the design of the lunar module cabin as the reason for Armstrong's being first. The hatch opened inwards and to the right, making it difficult for the lunar module pilot on the right-hand side to aggress first. Slayton added, secondly, just on a pure protocol basis, I figured the commander ought to be the first guy out. I changed it as soon as I found out they had a timeline that showed that. Bob Gerroth approved my decision. At the time of their meeting, the four men did not know about the hash issue. The first knowledge of the meeting outside the small group came when Kraft wrote in his 2001 autobiography. On July 16, 1969, Armstrong received a crescent moon carved out of styrofoam from the pad leader who described it as a key to the moon.
During the Apollo 11 launch, Armstrong's heart rate reached a top rate of 110 beats per minute. Very, very calm. He found the stage, the first stage, to be the loudest, much noisier than the Gemini 8 Titan II launch. And the Apollo control service module was relatively roomy compared to the Gemini capsule. This ability to move around was suspected to be the cause of space sickness that had hit members of previous crews. But thankfully, none of the 11 crews suffered from it. Armstrong was especially happy as he had been prone to motion sickness as a child and could experience nausea after doing long periods of acrobatics. The objective of Apollo 11 was to land safely rather than to touch down with precision on a particular spot. Three minutes into the lunar descent burn, Armstrong noted that craters were passing about two seconds too early, which meant the Eagle would probably touch down beyond the planned landing zone by several miles. As the Eagle's landing radar acquired the surface, several computer error alarms appeared. The first was a code 1202 alarm. And even with their extensive training, neither Armstrong nor Aldrin was aware of what this code meant. They promptly received word from Capcom in Houston that the alarms were not a concern. The 1202 and 1201 alarms were caused by an executive overflow in the lunar module computer. As described by Buzz Aldrin in the documentary In the Shadow of the Moon, the overflow condition was caused by his own counter-checklist choice of leaving the docking radar on during the landing process so that the computer had to process unnecessary radar data and did not have enough time to execute all tasks, dropping lower priority ones. Aldrin stated that he did so with the objective of facilitating redocking with the command module should an abort become necessary, not realizing that it would cause the overflow condition. When Armstrong noticed they were heading towards a landing area, which he believed was unsafe, he took over manual control of the lunar module and attempted to find an area which seemed safer, taking longer than expected and longer than most simulations had taken. For this reason, there was concern from mission control that the lunar module was running low on fuel. Upon landing, Aldrin and Armstrong believed they had about 40 seconds worth of fuel to lift, including the 20 seconds worth of fuel which had to be saved in the event of an abort. During training, Armstrong had landed the LLTV with less than 15 seconds left on several occasions. He was also confident that the lunar module could survive a straight down fall from 50 feet if needed. Analysis after the mission showed that at touchdown there was 45 to 50 seconds of propellant burn time left. 
The landing on the surface of the moon occurred at 2017-39 UTC on July 20th, 1969. When a sensor attached to the legs of the still hovering lunar module made lunar contact, a panel light inside the LEM lit up and Aldrin called out, contact light. As the lunar module settled on the surface, Aldrin then said, okay, engine stop. And Armstrong said, shut down. The first words Armstrong intentionally spoke to Mission Control and the world from the lunar surface were, Houston, tranquility base here, the Eagle has landed. Aldrin and Armstrong celebrated with a brisk handshake and a pat on the back before quickly returning to the checklist of tasks needed to ready the lunar rover, lunar module, for liftoff from the moon should an emergency unfold during the first moments on the lunar surface. During the critical landing, the only message from Houston was 30 seconds meaning the amount of fuel left. When Armstrong had confirmed touchdown, Houston expressed their worries during the manual landing as, you've got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Although the official NASA flight plan called for a crew rest period before EVA, Armstrong requested that the EVA moved to earlier in the evening Houston time. Once Armstrong and Aldrin were ready to go outside, Eagle was depressurized, the hatch was open, and Armstrong made his way down the ladder first. At the bottom of the ladder, Armstrong said, I'm going to step off the limb now. He then turned and set his left boot on the surface at 2.56 UTC July 21st 1969 then spoke the famous words that's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind Armstrong had decided on this statement following a train of thought that he had after launch and during the hours after landing the broadcast did not have the A before man, rendering the phase a contradiction, as man in such use is synonymous with mankind. NASA and Armstrong insisted for years that static had obscured the A, with Armstrong stating that he would never make such a mistake, but after repeated listenings to recordings, Armstrong admitted he must have dropped the A. Armstrong later said he would hope that history would grant me leeway for dropping the syllable and understand that it was certainly intended, even if it was not said, even though, although it might have actually been said. When Armstrong made this proclamation, Voice America was rebroadcast live via the BBC and many other stations worldwide. The estimated global audience at that moment was 450 million listeners out of then estimated world population of 3.6 billion people.
Neil Armstrong, who turned 82 on August 5, 2012, underwent surgery on August 7, 2012, to relieve a blocked coronary artery. Despite this surgery, however, Armstrong died on August 25, 2012. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet? Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.